I currently teach at Kambala, which is up the road. Uh, it's a girls' school. But I used to teach out in Forbes, and um, when I taught there, t- Forbes is a country town. It's got about 8,000 people in it, and it's about a third of the way to Broken Hill. So it's quite small, a little bit insular. Um, and one day, I rocked up to Year 10 Science on a Monday morning, and a girl turned to me and she said, Miss, I saw you in McDonald's on the weekend with another teacher. <laughs> and her friend turned to her and said, Yeah. Don't you know, teachers have friends. (laughs) And in some ways I get it. 15 year old Melanie, uh, who made the first comment, to her, my only function in the whole world uh, was to tell her facts about the universe and to remind her to do her homework. Um, She only knew me in the capacity as a science teacher um, and never considered that there might be more to my life. Now, to be honest, there isn't all that much more in my life, but um, hopefully everyone has more to who they are than just one single story or idea about their life. Um, And in the reading today, we had just one single scene from the life of Abraham. Like all single scenes, it only gives a really small picture of who Abraham is. We're doing a whole series on Abraham for this reason. and so if you're here today as a once-off, um, maybe, you know, a Sunday, what else is there to do, or you lost a bet, or, you know, you follow our Instagram page, or you're visiting from South Africa, um, come back, hear the rest of the story of Abraham. Uh, it makes so much more sense as a whole picture, uh, rather than just a single scene. Uh, But also, I think it's really important when we read Genesis 13, which is what today's reading was, uh, to understand Genesis 12, which is the reading, the chapter beforehand. 13 comes after 12. Um, Genesis 12 is really important. (laughs) Primary school teacher gets my joke, yes. (laughs) Um, Genesis 12 is really important, partly because the first eight verses are like some of the most important promises in the whole Bible. They're the promises that God gives to Abraham, and they shape the rest of the biblical narrative in lots of ways. But chapter 12 is also important because what happens after those eight verses is kind of a twin to the story today. So if you were here last week, you will recall we explored the story of those first eight verses, of God's promise to Abraham, of family, of land, and of blessing. Um, And that was his rescue plan for the whole world. We learned that God called Abraham into a new life to leave his past behind him and to live his life trusting in the God who made these promises. In the next bit of uh, Genesis, Abraham does, of course, what everyone who has just been given history-shaking, eschatologically significant, dramatically life-altering promises by God does. Uh, He goes and pretends that his wife is his sister because he's afraid. Uh, So Abraham gets his promises, and then there's a famine in the land, um, and he ends up in Egypt. And his wife, Sarah, is really hot. Um, So he is concerned that the Egyptians will kill him so that one of them can marry her. So he comes up with this sneaky plan. He says that I'll just say that Sarah is my sister and then I'll be treated well uh, because she's hot. Um, And Abraham and Sarah end up in Egypt and Pharaoh sees that indeed Sarah is good looking and she gets taken into his palace and Abraham is indeed treated well. But God isn't cool with this, uh, because God doesn't want people to make up sneaky plans. He wants them to follow his promises. And also, God doesn't like it when women get treated as objects. 
so God inflicts diseases on Pharaoh, and the rule of Egypt somehow works out that Sarah is actually Abraham's wife, and they both get kicked out of the country. This story does not reflect so well on Abraham. He's purposefully duplicitous. He treats his wife pretty badly, and he doesn't trust God's promise. And it's like seconds after God made that promise. Actually, Genesis has a pretty ambiguous timeline. It's possibly a couple of years. But still, if the God who made the whole universe uh, came and personally came to chat to you about his good intentions for your life, you think you might, you know, do what he says. Um, But it's really what faith is, uh, because there are times in life when trusting in God seems pretty easy. For Abraham, that is when God is like actually talking to him. But faith isn't about believing in God and his promises in the ideal. It's about practically living that out in our lives when life gets tricky. And it might be, yeah, for you, it might be that your life gets tricky because like Abraham, you have a stunningly attractive spouse. Or it might be that sometimes money is tight and you're presented with an easy way out. Or it might be that keeping faith seems more important than telling the truth. Or that acting with integrity is actually not an attractive prospect in light of a culture where people are duplicitous and sneaky all the time. But we see in Abraham's story that faith is more than trusting God's way is best. It's trusting and living like that, even when it doesn't feel like it to us. But the cool thing about Genesis 12 is that God is still looking after Abraham, even when he doesn't trust God. God is the one who afflicts Pharaoh and his house with his diseases, and it appears that he makes it pretty clear to Pharaoh that he has taken Abraham's wife. And God's blessing is apparent in Abraham's life because God's blessing and promise don't depend on human actions. Which brings us to Genesis 13, where things are going pretty well now for Abraham and Sarah and Abraham's nephew Lot, who is living with them. They cashed up in both livestock and gold, and we see God's blessing in the providence of possessions and livestock. It's so much that they can't all live together because really it's too many people and also just too many goats. Now, I've never had the problem in my life of too many goats. In fact, in my opinion, one goat is too many goats. But um, I think this is the case more to do with the amount of grazing land that the goats need. So Abraham says to his nephew Lot, look, this is a big place. There's lots of space. How about we deal with this goat problem by separating? It's not that I don't love you, but hey, it's gotten out of control. And Abraham makes this offer to Lot. If you go to the left, then I'll go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I'll go to the left. And Lot looks around, and there's one way that looks awesome. It's called Jordan towards Zor. It has lots of water. The Bible said it's like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, which I think is a kind of biblical equivalent of a tagline on domain. Uh, you know, like if you're looking to buy, Jordan towards Zor. It's like the garden of the Lord. I think domain should use the garden of the Lord more often when it's um, trying to sell your properties. But uh, the Bible doesn't tell us what the opposite direction looks like, uh, but I think we're supposed to infer it's more like a renovator's dream kind of landscape. (laughs) And Lot, somewhat predictably and very humanly, chooses to take the garden of the Lord land, and Abraham and his family head off in the other direction. So Abraham lets Lot go off and take the good land, and God speaks again to Abraham. He reaffirms his promise of land. Indeed, he says... This is the land that I'm going to give to you. Whatever way you look, this land will belong to your descendants. 
I'm going to fill it with your descendants, so many offspring they can't be counted. He invites Abraham to rise up and to walk the length and the breadth of the land, knowing that one day it will be his. And this is where we leave Abraham at the end of chapter 13, and he's building an altar to the Lord. In both this story and the one before it, um, chapters 12 and 13, God is faithful to his promise to Abraham. He is the one who is making his promises go forward. Whether Abraham gets his part in it right or wrong, nothing can stop God's plans. God's plans are relentless and they always go forward. In fact, at the end there, he reaffirms his promise of family and land, despite the fact that Abraham is still childless and the land seems to have a heap of other people living in it. And Abraham just gave a whole section of it away to Lot. Just as Abraham's character is not a deterrent to God's faithfulness, neither is the circumstances of Abraham's life. And we know as people who live after Jesus that Israel, which is the name of the nation that Abraham's offspring goes into, will get things wrong all the time. But that doesn't stop God's plan to increase them, to give them land and to bless the whole world through them. We know that their, their sin doesn't stop him, nor is the fact that as a nation they're never the biggest, they're never the strongest, they're never the most organised uh, or the most resourced. God works his promise through them and most ultimately through Jesus. God's plan to redeem the world and to bless his people cannot be stopped. If God's make a prom- God makes a promise, then it's going to happen. And the cool thing about these twin stories is that they show us something about the way that God works in and through our lives. God's plan and purpose are relentless and they can't be stopped by our failures or foibles or the circumstances of our lives. There is a certainty about what God does, which in turn offers insight into the huge advantage it is to be on God's side. If God's promises are secure and his word is airtight, then we don't have to fear anything. God's promises and plans go forward relentlessly, which is enormously encouraging for those of us who know our identity and hope are in him. One amazing thing we see in Genesis 13 is not only that God's plan is going forward despite Abraham, it's that God's plan goes forward including Abraham in it. When we get on board with God's plan in our lives, uh, our lives can have amazing capacity for good and for blessing. The decisions we make can bless others. We see that in Genesis 13, being on side with God gives life purpose and direction. In chapter 13, Abraham is acting in a way that is consistent with his knowledge of God's plan going forward. So he doesn't have to scramble to get the best land or to hoard all the goats for himself because there is a bigger story at play. And his choice to give Lot the better portion of the land uh, is a beautifully generous act which Abraham can only make because he's securing God's plan going forward. It's also important to note that the way Abraham acted in chapter 12 doesn't diminish the worth of his actions in chapter 13. Because if I had made promises to like uh, the ones in the first part of chapter 12 to Abraham, and then Abraham went and pulled the kind of stunt he does in Egypt with Sarah, I'd be like, sorry mate, I'm off to find another nomadic childless couple to be the start of my grand scheme to redeem the whole world through Christ. (laughs) Luckily, God does not act like Fiona, which is fortuitous in so many ways, Um, and he keeps on using us despite our past mistakes. God keeps on loving us, protecting us, and blessing us, and using us, even when we stuff up.
And I think we can sometimes be tempted to think that our past failures mean that God cannot or won't use us now. But God's plans and promises go relentlessly forward, never backward, which means our salvation story goes forward. This is true of the story of the Bible, but it's also true of the stories of our own salvation. When God forgives us for our wrongdoings and welcomes us into relationship with him, it means that our mistakes and failures of our past never diminish our capacity to be used by God to bring about his glory. We're not perfect people, we all know it, but we can be used by God without any shame from past failure. John Newton, the famous once was slave trader and writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, phrased it like this. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, and that, by the grace of God, I am what I am. God takes our messy, ridiculous, broken lives and puts them together. He tells us to forget what we used to be and instead now be used for his good. There is incredible freedom in knowing this, in knowing that God doesn't discard us when we are wronged, uh, that he doesn't give up on us when we fail. He treats our failure seriously, yes. So seriously, he sent Jesus to deal with it in finality. But in Christ, we are a new creation. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, God does not count our sins against us. And more than that, he makes us his ambassadors. God offers that our choices get to be a part of his story. So rather than our choices, meaning God has to rescue us from Egypt, our choices can be a blessing to others which gives us hope in our actions here and now because the everyday choices and decisions we make are part of God's plan, eternal plan of rescuing and blessing the world. The things we do on an everyday basis have an eternal significance. We can be like Abraham in chapter 12 where our actions have painful consequences but God's good plan will still go forward or we can be like Abraham in 13 when our actions are consistent with his plan for the world. In 12, the decisions bring trouble and pain, but in 13, goodness, blessing, and well-being. But our capacity for what is good, for how we act in blessing and joyous generosity to others, doesn't come from some grim determination within us, or even because we think uh, that will bring us blessing. That's not how God's grace or blessing works. Nor does it come with the hope of economic reward. There is a real temptation here to read the passage and to think, oh, there's an easy message to draw out. If I give away my stuff, God will give stuff to me. Uh, this is called prosperity gospel, and generally it's both bad theology and poor economic policy. Because God calls us into a generosity uh, that's actually so much more awesome than that. It's looking forward with hope, secure in who God is, the God whose purposes and promises always go forward, which allows Abraham and us to operate under such radical generosity. If we know that God will deliver on his promise despite anything, we can act in ways that trust him and bless others despite anything. 
There's a very similar story to the one in Genesis 13 in Luke 12. Um, someone comes to God, uh, Jesus, demanding their fair share of the inheritance. We assume this person is not um, having a focus on how they can be generous or how they can bless others. They're just out for as much money or land as they can get from their sibling. And they want Jesus to justify it for them. Jesus, in response, tells a parable about a guy who has a good harvest. So he builds a bigger barn. And then he has another good harvest. And he builds a bigger barn and a bigger barn and a bigger barn and a bigger barn, like a Russian doll situation, um, to store all that he has. But then he forgets that life doesn't consist in storing possessions. And God takes his life away from him. Jesus draws a deliberate contrast between the kind of attitude the rich fool has, one who stores up things for himself, and the kind of attitude that's exemplified by Abraham giving the land away to Lot, one of being rich towards God that is played out in richness towards others. And so we can operate out of generosity rather than scarcity. When the writer of the Hebrews is talking about the awesomeness of Abraham's faith in Hebrews 11, the writer speaks about how Abraham made his home in a foreign country, living in tents, because he was looking forward to the city which had foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was able to live with a lack of economic or physical security because he had the security of God's promises. We live like Abraham with uncertainty about the future, but also with 100% certainty of God's promises being fulfilled. This is what allows us to act with radical generosity in a world that is filled by a need to fearfully hoard possessions. We know that regardless of what happens, we have an identity secure in what God will do. And even more than Abraham, we know what God has done because we have seen that God has fulfilled his promise in blessing the world in Jesus. That in Jesus, that city that the writer of the Hebrews talks about is an eternal city. It's one that's totally secure and open to us. And so our lives can look forward with relentless hope and relentless optimism. We too can be people of radical generosity. It seems unlikely you will have to choose to give your nephew the better portion of the land, but maybe. However, we can be people who give of our time and our money generously, who give of our emotions, who give of our capacity for people when we invest in community together. People who are generous even... Uh, even if that results in a lack of security for us, because we know that God is holding us securely. If we have the fullness of what we know to be true about God, that his promises are secure, that his love is unending, then there is nothing which we fear. Then we can be people who do not hold back when there is an option to be generous. One of the most striking things I find about the difference between Abraham in chapters 12 and chapters 13 is his total lack of anxiety in 13. In 12, he's super stressed about what's going to happen to him and Sarah. And in Luke 12, the parable of the rich fools shows that similar kind of attitude. It's a picture of anxiety, of jealousy, and a lack of faith. But Abraham in Genesis 13 can act from a position of total calm, trusting in God's goodness to live And calmness because that's something that I find hard, maybe because I live in a boarding house of 100 girls, but <laughs> modern life is stressful, um, and the offer of calmness and a lack of anxiety is such a compelling reason to trust in the God of Abraham, because that God, 
His plans go relentlessly forward. He can offer certain hope, a hope with strong foundations, whose architect and builder is God.